Well, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to return to the wisdom of Solomon this morning and, um, and gain some, some additional truth about, uh, about areas that bring particular frustrations in a, in a fallen world. The Bible tells us that we cannot escape the curse, but we can learn to live wisely under it. And if we do, we can enjoy, even enjoy, the gifts that God has given us here. The Lord has cursed the earth, and that has affected you, but God has not left us without help, and He has not left us without many, many blessings. But on the flip side, if we refuse God's wisdom, the purposelessness and frustration of the fall will will only be magnified. And today we have a topic where that is particularly true, and it affects everyone in here today. Starting in chapter 3, Solomon addresses ten areas that we need the light of God's wisdom while we're digging in the, in the dark tunnels of the curse. Solomon says, if you learn to use his, his tool of God's sovereignty, you will find diamonds in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. What we need, most of all, is a right view of God. You mess that up, everything else is downhill from there. God has a grip on everything. He'll make everything beautiful in His time. And that helps us as we live under this, under the, under the sun. If, if you have that, it's priceless, Solomon says. But then, Solomon is going to take us down nine additional mining shafts in chapter four and five that are particular frustrations in a, in a Genesis three world. They're also going to yield treasure. Maybe not the, the extent of, of the first fifteen verses, but treasure nonetheless that, that we need in order to to live life under the sun. And he started addressing those specific areas where we, where we feel this frustration and futility, and he covered injustice, death, and depression of the weak or abuse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Even as believers, you feel that, don't you? Don't you feel vexed as, and at times exasperated whenever you see the innocent declared guilty or the guilty escaping punishment? What about when someone dies in the prime of their life, as it said? Or, or maybe whenever you begin to think about your own death and, and, and how futile it is of all that you've labored is, is just going to be left behind. And, and is there anything more heart-twisting than, than abuse? Solomon's goal for us is to gain wisdom. And, and if we'll listen to reduce some of the frustration in these, in these specific areas. And today... Solomon is going to give us wisdom on the frustrations that we feel in work. Now, there are few things in life besides sleep that you will engage in more than, than labor. So if you haven't paid attention up to this point, you're going to be a wise person if you listen to Solomon today. If you, if you don't, it could lead to a, a lifetime of frustration. Now, I didn't calculate this myself, but 
someone else did, and they say on average, the average person spends over 900,000 hours of their, of their life in, in work. And many of you probably more than, than that. That's over a third of your life. 26 plus years of your existence, if you follow Moses' Moses's calculation, 70, and if you're, if you're blessed, 80, 26 plus years of your life will be spent in, in labor. That's, that's a lot of your life to lack wisdom, isn't it? Well, Solomon's going to help you this morning. 9,733 days of life under the curse, under the sun, spent in frustration, if you do not heed Solomon's wisdom that he provides to us in these three short verses. Solomon wants you to enjoy your life in Christ. He says that if you want to do that, you need to follow his wisdom or you're going to be filled with a lot of frustration if you get work wrong. This section's been described as escaping the rat race, a proper perspective on work, living with contentment, all of them are correct. Solomon teaches this in three verses. Look at Ecclesiastes 4, verse, verse 4. In this Proverbs-like approach, there are three parts to this section, and, and, the, and it's very easy to observe what, what Solomon, the, how, how he moves in progression here. Look at verse 4. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of of rivalry, rivalry as the motive for work is condemned. The second part is in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Solomon now addresses the opposite. Solomon says that's bad, don't, don't go too far. Verse 4 is bad, rivalry is bad, but don't go too far and fall into laziness because that's not the answer either. And then he finally gives the answer in, in verse 6. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of, of labor and striving after the wind. Solomon shows us a man who has the wrong incentive to work, no incentive to work, and then too much incentive to work in verse 6. Or the way that I will outline it for you today, three wise words about work under the sun. A wrong ambition in work leads to frustration, Solomon says. Too little ambition for work leads to destruction. And the right amount of ambition leads to contentment. And that's how he rounds it out. This passage is like the story of Goldilocks on work. One approaches a little too hot, one approaches a little too cold, and the last one's just right. You see that? Solomon starts his wisdom with... The wrong ambition. A wrong ambition leads to or brings frustration. Look, if you would, at verse 4 again. I have seen, Solomon says, that every labor and every skill which is done is the result. That's the idea, is the result of, of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Solomon looks. At every labor under the sun. And he also notices the skill that's, that's involved. Solomon doesn't just observe it from afar. The idea is he, he examines it. He, he gets out his monocular and, and he begins to, to look at, at all the labor in general. 
But then he looks, he looks deeper. He looks at the effort and then also the excellence that's, that's put forth. That's the second word there. You see how he says labor and, and skill. It's the idea of examining something as a whole and then ex- inspecting it for excellence or intricacy. It's like, it's like noticing the, the fine, uh, stitching lines on a, on a, on a good suit or the brush marks on a, or a masterful oil painting. You look at the painting in general and then you get up close to it and, and you notice all of the little, little details that the, that the artist has, has done. And that's what Solomon is doing here whenever he's talking about labor of, of a person's life. But then as he examines these things, he looks beneath the, the fabric or, or, or behind the, the surface and, and what he sees is disturbing. He sees the motive for, for that excellence, the motive for that, for that labor. The work is excellent, but the motive is corrupt. And Solomon sees that this is going to bring great emptiness and discontentment in the end. That's what he says here. This too, in verse 4, is vanity. It's, it's striving after the wind. If this is the motive, this is the engine for why you do what you do, whether you're excellent or not, it's going to lead you to to frustration. Do you marvel at what people can accomplish with their, with their labor, especially inventors or, or people in business or, or whatever it, it is? I mean, we like shows like uh, Shark Tank or the, the Great British Bake Off because of that, who's going to win the dessert challenge or, or whatever it is. So does Solomon. And he observes it. When he looks closely, he sees something sinister. He sees rivalry. He sees the motive that many have for their pursuit of excellence and, and their search for success. And it's, it's void of God. It's, a, it's an empty pursuit. Now, some of your translations may say envy. And that's a fine word. I just don't think that it, it goes far enough. I think the New American Standard gives the, the end result of envy. Yes, there's envy involved in this, but, but envy about what? And, and where's that envy directed? Which is why rivalry, I think, is, the, is, a, is a great word. Envy is part of the engine of exertion. But Solomon's idea is more of a, of a covetous competition between individuals. Rivalry is not striving to do your best. Solomon is surely not, not condemning that. Rivalry is not striving to do your best. It's striving to do better than your neighbor. Solomon says when he looks at work without God, the engine of effort and excellence runs on the restless desire to outclass everyone else. The word, the word rivalry can be explained, I think, with, with three words. I think there's a progression here. There's comparison. It starts with comparison. You compare yourself to others, what they have, what you don't have, whether that's a, a friend, uh, what you see on TV, whoever it is, there's a comparison that takes place. And the minute that that comparison takes place, covetousness kicks in. I must gain that. I want that. I don't have that. And then that's where the competition picks up. Then you work harder to get it, to outdo others, or to to equal them. Rivalry in work is driven by comparison and expresses itself in 
in competition. I want better than the other guy. I want more than the other guy. And when the other guy sees that you have both, he returns fire and goes after the, the same the same thing. Now, there's a subtle nuance here, isn't there? Because the Bible tells us to work and the Bible tells us to be excellent. And, and it's a good thing to be motivated, uh, motivated to, do, to do your best. And you may even admire someone else's work. And, 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 and that, may, that may prod you to do better at, at your own. But that's not what Solomon's talking about here. He's not talking about admiring the glory of God or the ability of another person and then saying, wow, I want to reach that skill as well for God. He's talking about seeing that and then, and then having a desire to, to outdo them. It's a, it's, a, it's a baser motivation. And that fuel that I just talked about with the rivalry is the, is the gasoline the, that moves the world system, isn't it? If you don't believe Solomon, all you have to do is look at the commercials. What's in your wallet, right? Everybody knows that one. I wish I didn't know that one. But it doesn't stop there. Solomon says it is secretly behind most of what you do. Much of our effort is motivated to by... Uh, by getting ahead or to get ahead of the, of the rest of the herd, not, not to serve God. We start Billy in early reading program at two years old so he can get ahead of his peers, right? We sign up Janie for a, a year-round soccer so she can have better skills than girls her same age and maybe play varsity when she's only old enough for JV. Of course, we're only doing that so she can get a college scholarship to help her pay for the tuition Bill, for a degree she won't do well in because she's too busy playing sports year-round, right? You get the mailers at, at home that target this, right? Congratulations, your child has made who's who of kindergarten, right? For no, for just a small fee of $59.95, you can, they'll send you the book with his or her name in it, which is wonderful because it has your name at the end, your last name. So you can see it, and it looks official. Never mind, we made up the list, and it's meaningless. And stay tuned by the time when you get this mailer when they're in high school, you can put that made-up award on their resume. Seems silly whenever we, we look at things like, like that. But Solomon says that we're all prone to it, and it's not just with children. Prone to be motivated by envy, jealousy, and rivalry. What's the conversation that goes on in your car on the way home or maybe inside of your head after you leave someone else's house? Did you notice your neighbor's bathroom? The dog hair on the floor? Do you think, can you believe how dirty that was? Or maybe the opposite. Why can't my bathroom look like that? I, I wish my kids did their chores better. I think they would if my husband was, was home more to back me up and discipline them. I, I bet her husband really takes his role seriously. You see how rivalry can get us into trouble very quickly? You're prone to comparison, aren't you? You eat at a church afterglow and you think, my apple pie is way better than the apple pie that I just ate. <laughs> or you, maybe the opposite. You, you think, 
that apple pie is way better than mine, and now I'm going to search for a new recipe in order to, to bake a better one. You see a random person's lawn when you drive down the road, and it looks better than yours, and you think, I need to do my mulch beds, and next Saturday, what are you doing? You're out there working on your on your mulch bed. Solomon says, what is behind much of the effort and pursuit of excellence without Christ is robbery. And it's going to lead to a lot, a lot of frustration. He says it's going to leave you empty, unsatisfied. If that's your engine, if that's your motive, it's like trying to catch the wind. You're never going to outdo everyone. You're always going to find somebody that's better or somebody that's, that's worse. It's like chasing the wind. Or it can bring even greater devastation in your life. Just ask Cain and Abel what rivalry does. Or maybe Jacob and Esau, right? Even the parents got in on that one. What about Saul and David? Saul has killed his thousands and David killed his ten thousands. And what happened with Saul? Solomon says, take a lesson from Sarah and Hagar about rivalry. Sarah desired a, a baby. It doesn't even have to be work. Sarah desired a baby because her womb was barren, a little longer than her pride would allow compared to all the other pregnant women in, in Israel. And so she opted for plan S. That's S for stupid. <laughs> plan B. Uh, out Doing something outside of God. And we have Islam today because of Sarah's rivalry. What Solomon sees is that in his experience, man appears to be incapable of working or achieving anything without striving frantically to do better than others. Not better for God, but better than, than others. And I don't want you to miss that this, this, this topic that follows abuse, that follows oppression, is not totally disconnected. Bill Barrick noted, it's more popular to criticize corporate greed and political oppression, like what we learned about last week, than to recognize that such injustices originate with the envy and jealousy that too often motivate a person in his or her own drive to succeed at any cost. It's easy to talk about big corporations or the abuses of the system and that actually gives us cover not to deal with the envy and the rivalry and the jealousy and the things that go on in our, in our own heart. Work without God leaves you with a pretty low bar for motivation. Base, the base motives of a person's work is rendered to keeping up with the Joneses. There's another approach to work that's just as bad. And that's the second one. Verse 5. Too little ambition leads to destruction. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Solomon sees the flip side of the coin, uh, another area that will produce massive frustration in, in life unless you heed his wisdom, and it's, it's laziness. The contrast to working for the wrong reasons is, is the other extreme, not, not working at all. And, and this will bring destruction 
in your life. One is, is uh, verse 4 is, is vanity and striving after the wind. This is a consuming of your, of your own flesh. It's a destruction. It's, it's only one verse. It's very short. But it contains a graphic picture of a lazy or doulous person. This is the sluggard from the book of Proverbs. Solomon even names him here. He's the fool who has too little ambition. This is the tendency to say, if effort and excellence only breeds jealousy, envy, and even hatred, then, then why work hard? And again, it's more than just the guy, what was the wimpy, I'll, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, or, or the, the proverbial um, person who refuses to work and, and has, uh, has nine babies on welfare. There's, there's something a lot deeper going on here. You may sit here and say, I am not a lazy person, but you need to hear Solomon's definition of what motivates this before you draw that conclusion. This is a tendency... What Solomon is talking about here is the tendency to say, if the deck is stacked against me, if I will never get ahead because I don't know the right people, or I didn't go to college, or I'm a minority in a majority world, or I'm from West Virginia, or whatever it is, I won't even try. What he said. The idea is, I can't compete. I compare myself to what's going on and I can't measure up to get ahead to get what I want. When I compare myself to the Joneses, I'm way down here, so I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna engage in that, in that system. I'm just going to fold my hands and I'm not going to use them with the strength that God has given me. And Solomon says that's not wise either. It's the fool who throws up his hands and then folds them. I can remember standing in the corner of the VFW at 20-something with several guys talking about their dream job, getting on with the, the, as a phone company lineman. That was the job that you wanted if you didn't go to college. And when the circle got around to one of my unsaved buddies, he was going to answer what his dream job was, he... He exhaled his cigarette and he said, My life's goal is permanent disability. I can remember another group of friends who were in the union who, can, who would conveniently strike at the same time every year that just happened to be around deer season. And about the time deer season was over, they'd go back to work. Then there's the stories that you could probably fill in about lazy people. And all the hard-working, rivalrous people said, I am glad I am not like that, right? The flesh is always at work. There's nothing new under the sun. And under the sun, Solomon sees laziness in his day. He sees giving up in his day. He sees not putting forth the effort that is necessary, that's commensurate to the abilities that God has given you, because of whatever reason, you can't measure up, and that's not the answer either. Solomon describes this approach in, in, in very graphic terms. He says doing that is, is like self-cannibalizing. That's, that's what this phrase means. He consumes his own flesh. It's like eating your, 
your own flesh. It's, it's, it's kind of gross. You, you get hungry and you don't have anything to eat because you haven't engaged and you haven't worked and so you, you, know, you hack off a finger or something and that's what you have for lunch. It's a, it's a grotesque way of, of making us think about, about not doing this. The fool's problem is not being overly motivated to work out of, out of comparison to someone else. His problem is he's not motivated at all especially if he thinks it's not going to get him anywhere. And the Bible says that work is a gift from God. That's not how it's presented in our culture, is it? The culture either tries to pit your account and accomplishments against someone else, so your work is for rivalry, or it presents work as something that you want to avoid, or at least get done as quick as possible. And again, I can prove it to you with some common slogans. T-G-I-F. That's not the restaurant. Working for the weekend. Hump day. What's that mean? I'm halfway to the weekend. How do you feel about Mondays? You like Mondays? (laughs) What do all those things communicate? That work is somehow a curse, it's a necessary evil, so you have to do it so you can get money to do what you want to do, but it's of no value in and of itself. That's exactly the opposite of what God says about work. Work, from God's perspective, is not simply a means to achieve whatever, success or wealth or fame or even rest. God God has made it much more than that. It's a blessing for everyone to enjoy. Wherever you rank on the comparison chart. If you look at the Scriptures, I think you find six wonderful things that the Bible says about work. First of all, God exalted work by commanding it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. You won't have to turn there. You'll know it the minute that I start reading it. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor male or female servants or your animals nor any foreigners, a foreigner residing in your town. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And when God gave His people instructions or commands about how to live as His people in His presence, He exalted work within the the Sabbath command. It's not a curse. It's It's part of God's blessing. It was commanded. God also made work part of man's normal normal existence. It's a normal thing to, to work. It's not a normal thing to get out of work, even though we spend a lot of our times trying to do that. Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and and keep it. The fall didn't bring work. The fall cursed work, which is why Solomon is trying to give us wisdom, because this is part of the curse when, when we approach work. Work before the fall was fulfilling. Whatever Adam did in labor, the result was fulfilling. It was perfect. Whatever he put his hands to, it accomplished the purpose that, that he had for it. After the fall, our, our labor became frustrated. The ground worked against him. Listen to Genesis three seventeen through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken... 
where you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Genesis says the ground was cursed. Work is not a curse. The third thing I think the Bible says about work, God describes work as a gift that He has given. We just saw this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.13. Look at that. I know there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of, of God. God describes work as a, as a gift. And if the gift of work that God has given to man has within it the ability to be productive and develop skill and to have sense of contribution and value, you can understand why it's a gift. A person who, who doesn't put their hands to something typically will, will, will go downhill very, very quickly. If you get the blues or you get depressed, one of the first things that you should do is go put your hands to something. Because if you don't, the spiral will continue. I understand you don't want to. You don't want to do it. There were times this past week, and I'm not saying I was in depression, but there were times this past week that I did not want to do the labor that was in front of me and what I did was I went and did the labor that was in front of me when I didn't want to do it. And I wish I could say I was always that successful. I'm usually not. So that's how I know what happens when I don't do that. I feel even worse. It's a, work is a gift to be productive and develop skill and provide a sense of contribution. Look at four. Work provides every man with the opportunity to glorify God. I think this is the big one that fits into what Solomon is saying, saying here. Colossians 2, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord rather than for men. You hear Solomon there? For the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a secular job or worthless effort in God's eyes. The Christian view of work is it's an opportunity to glorify God by living a fruitful and faithful life. We're not like the bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, right? We have an infinitely higher view of work than to just pay debts and, and, and for our toys. And sometimes we wrongly think that, that the way we glorify God at work is limited by, to just acting like a Christian while we're, while we're there. We fail to see it. what we're doing is part of being His follower. That's why giving up on work is not the answer to those who have lost the rival rewards. And that's why wherever you rank in the comparison, if you fall to that, you come back to this verse because wherever you're from or whatever ability you have, God says that has value because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Leland Riken in his book Redeeming the Time I think helps us think properly about this. Here's what he says. Most Christians believe that they can be a Christian at work. To do so in 
involves being a diligent worker, being honest in one's dealings with an employer, and a witness to fellow workers. And all that's true. But this still leaves the work itself untouched by one's Christian faith. The Reformers were right in going beyond this and claiming the work itself is a spiritual issue and a means of glorifying God. And we can be Christian not only in our work, but through our work. If we view our work as an obedient response, as an obedient response to God's calling. Do you get what he's saying? Your work is not just a place to be a Christian, whether that's outside of the home or inside of the home. It's part of your calling. Your vocation is what God has called you to do in, in His kingdom. And, and seeing it that way brings Him, brings Him glory. The Bible also says that God works. That in and of itself ought to motivate us to do it, right? God worked in creation when He made everything. He didn't need to make anything, but He did. God works in preserving us daily. He works in redemption. He's working right now in providence. Jesus said He came to work. John 5.17 My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. When He finished His work on the cross, He's still doing the work of intercession right now at the right hand of the, of the Father. He's, he's still doing His work of building His church. The Holy Spirit works. By convicting sinners and regenerating them and illuminating the truth. If this is true, how can we then not think work is part of our, a part of our daily, daily life? And finally, I think the Bible teaches very clearly that refusing to work leads to greater sin. J.C. Ryle said, we must have our hands filled and our minds occupied with something or else our imaginations will soon ferment and breed mischief. <laughs> there are a lot of people who spend a lot of energy trying to get out of work only to fall into even greater sin. You say, so what's the answer? Well, Solomon gives us that next. And he corrects one more of our tendencies. Look if you would at verse 6. Solomon says the right amount of ambition leads to contentment. Verse 6. One handful of rest is better than two fistfuls or two fistful of labor and striving after the, the wind. Another condemnation here. Now I can see all three of these tendencies creeping up in my heart from, from time to time. But this last one is a particular Temptation for me. I have to repent of it. I learned a lot about work from, from my home, from growing up. I can remember hearing the stories like you did, and yet I think mine were true. The stories about my dad, how he got up at 3.30 a.m. every morning in grade school. No exaggeration. Before he went to work to deliver newspapers to get off at three to go deliver more newspapers. I heard the stories about how when people didn't show up for work that they, he had to do their paper route because his father was the one that ran the, the newspaper office there in the town and it would look bad on, on his, his father. And as you can imagine, 
with that background, when there was an opportunity to teach a son about the importance of work, I got the message, and I got it on a regular basis. And I'm very thankful for that lesson. I really am very thankful for that lesson. But Solomon takes us to graduate school here in the area of work. He shows us the wrong motives behind work. He says, don't work for the wrong reason. He shows us the right motive is to work. Don't give up on work. That's not the answer. Do it to the glory of God. You serve Christ. And now he gives us the correct balance in work. He says, one fist full of rest or contentment is better than two fists full of labor. This is another comparison proverb. One is better than two. And Solomon's wisdom is not like going to the eye doctor where they say better one, better two. And you can't tell any difference. You can clearly see the difference here between someone who has one fist full of work and someone who has two fists full of work, can't you? The comparison is abundantly clear. One fistful of work, Solomon says, is better than two fistful. You ever tried to carry too much to the car? Maybe you're late and your hands are so full that, that you can't open the doorknob and so you're like trying to take your pinky to open the doorknob and, and, and whenever you do it flips back up and you drop everything in the floor and it takes you twice as long to pick everything up than it would have been if you took two trips to begin with. You ever done that? Solomon is trying to teach us this lesson with work. He says you can approach work where you have two fistful of it. You grab life by both horns. And when you do, your hands are so full of work that you have no place to carry any rest or the contentment of Christ. God doesn't have any place to put blessings or contentment in a two-fisted life. And that will bring a lot of frustration in life under the sun. Are you the type of person that wonders why everyone else is so weak and they can't handle as much as you? You can't understand why Jill or John won't put forth a little more effort? Or maybe you even look down on them because of it? If so, you're probably a two-fisted worker, as one commentator put it. Solomon says... What good is it to work and to gain handfuls of fruit of your labor if you never have a hand free to eat from it? What good is it to get ahead and, and never slow down long enough to use the advantage? What, what good are two hands full of work when, when your heart is lacking Christ and, and your head is empty of the Word? What, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? What, what good is it to gain the, the top position in the company and lose your family. Solomon's already shown us the futility of personal success. He's not arguing against work. There's one hand that is full of work. He's arguing against not keeping another open hand in order to enjoy the blessings of God. He's arguing for whatever that work is in that one hand... You do it. You see it as a calling and you do it unto Christ. You don't think that the, the only way that you serve Jesus is to be a pastor or a missionary. You work and that's part of your calling. But here he says, excess labor will bring you a lifetime of frustration. Solomon says rest is spiritual. Metered relaxation is godly. 
You say prove it. Okay? Genesis 2.1 Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed His work which He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Who rested? God did. That's the basis for the Sabbath command. God's intent of the Sabbath is, is not you can't, but you, you, you can because of Him. It's, it was a day when His people were reminded that He was their God, that He was their Creator, and that He was fulfilling blessed promises to them. And, and it was a day spent with family and God's people and sharing a meal and eating and drinking and, and rejoicing after there was a one hand that was full of, of labor. Two of the three things that Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that God's given us to enjoy in a cursed world are food and family, and the other is work. Solomon says to the person who grabs work by both hands, you are unwise if you don't leave one hand open. Let me take it a step further, if that's because I don't know that that sounds serious enough to, to motivate you. Unwise. And this is where it gets convicting for me, and I've already repented before the sermon. It is a sin if your hands are so full of work that you can't rejoice in Jesus Christ. If Jesus, according to the New Testament, has brought the Sabbath to our souls, it's the one commandment that's not repeated. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. If Jesus has brought the Sabbath to our souls, which is the joy of fellowshipping with Him and His people and all the spiritual blessings that follow, which you can do because He's redeemed your soul, and you're too busy or too work-focused to rejoice in that, then you're not just breaking the, the fifth commandment one day a week, you're breaking it daily. You say, so how do I avoid that? I don't want to do that. We'll turn over to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. We're going to get here in, before we're done. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. How do I avoid working for rivalry or giving up because I don't measure up or or the tendency to grab two fists full rather than one and leaving one, one open? What, what, what wisdom do you have for me, Solomon? Verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which He has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil for which you have labored under the sun. It's a gift. According to the Bible, that's wise. What's the good life look like? 
Work hard. Have a fistful of it. Don't be lazy. Work is a blessing. But at the end of the day, go home, eat a good dinner, enjoy your family, watch some TV, and have time with your wife. Work hard, and then take a vacation and enjoy yourself and leave your computer at home. That's what Solomon's saying. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time that you went home and ate a good meal and rested and laughed with your family and then enjoyed the company of your spouse? Because that is the reward that you are supposed to have for your labor under the sun, these blessings. And if your hands are so full that you, uh, of laboring and striving that, that you, can't, you can't have, you don't enjoy the time with God's people or with family or friends or, or, or anything else, then you're going to live a, an, empty, an empty life. This is God's gift to His people. But one final warning. Only a Christian can do this. Because Jesus Christ has given rest to their restless souls. You remember what Solomon told us about earlier? There's a continual search for meaning. You just look and scratch and look everywhere because God removed our ability to be satisfied in anything other than life. Jesus Christ comes in and provides that meaning. He ends that search. He gives rest to your, to your soul. Rest that you won't find here. Those who have Christ find complete satisfaction in Him. They have peace with God. They have daily worship and joy of knowing that He is their God. And those people can enjoy some of the blessings of this life while we wait on all things to be made new. If these are some of the blessings of life under the curse, friends, family, eating, drinking, what do you think heaven's going to be like? It's going to be like believers Amen. being together with Christ, eating and drinking and rejoicing and fellowship. Won't that be a wonderful day? Yeah. I can't wait for that day. Why don't you bow your heads?